Welcome back to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I still like scary movies. Tonight, however, for my first week into the new year, I won't be talking about a movie that scares me. No, the film I'm looking at tonight does something far better than that. You see, the thing is, guys, sooner or later, in every girl's life, a film comes along. A film that is so... Perfectly awful, so deliciously bad that she just knows. She knows if she doesn't talk about it on her podcast, her head will explode. So that's the kind of film I'm going to be talking about tonight. More specifically, I'll be diving in to Voodoo Moon, written and directed by Kevin Van Hook, released on the Sci-Fi Channel in June of 2006. For reasons I'm not going to go into right now, I had to record the majority of this episode outside of my studio, so get ready for the audio quality to change. This film was sent to me by my mother as a Halloween gift last year. On the inside of the DVD case was a post-it, and on that post-it she had written a single, simple sentence. Spoiler alert, this is a bad film. She was not wrong. I watched this obsessively for at least a solid month, and then I took a couple of months off to ride out the end of 2020. But now I'm back, and I just, I can't take it anymore. I will be touching down on a few points of interest in horror news and sharing a few of my thoughts on the new Castle Freak, but I'm saving all of that for the end of tonight's episode because I'm done waiting. It's time. It's time to talk about Voodoo Moon. There's a pit in hell for adulterers. The righteous man can stand before filth unafraid. What is Voodoo Moon exactly, you may or may not be asking. Well, I'll tell you. It's a fantasy horror film about a modern-day cowboy exorcist and his psychic sister battling the devil to save the world and avenge their parents' deaths. It stars Eric Mabius and Charisma Carpenter and features appearances by Dee Wallace, John Amos, Frank Collison, and none other than Jeffrey Combs. This film really does have it all. It has murder, intrigue, demonic possession, sex, Zombies, a killer priest whose fingers make actual gun sounds, fake tattoos, mermaids, sort of, and lots and lots of birds. In fact, the biggest issue that this film has is that it does basically everything. Too much. It tells too many stories, trails off in far too many different directions, and it's pretty much impossible to follow even after repeat viewings. This kind of makes sense when you consider that Kevin Van Hook, in addition to VFX and filmmaking, has also done a lot of comic book writing. He created the anti-hero assassin Bloodshot for Valiant Comics back in 1992, and he's written for Flash Gordon, Batman, and G.I. Joe, among others. That comic book background is everywhere in Voodoo Moon, which is rife with rich character concepts and side plots that are ultimately stunted by the film's limited runtime. Granted, trying to do too much isn't the only fault the film has, but I would say it's the thing from which it suffers the most. 
And in my opinion, that's a good problem for a bad movie to have. It has potential. And it was made with love. Van Hook didn't just write and direct Voodoo Moon, he also edited and co-produced the film, and gave himself a hilariously awkward cameo toward the beginning. And he truly believed in the project. He was so passionate about it, which is evident in his director commentary. And I, for one, appreciate that. He had a vision, and he worked hard to realize it. Yes, he missed the mark a lot, but he tried to do something meaningful, and for that, he has earned my respect. Voodoo Moon, as I mentioned, tells many stories, but the main story is that of Cole, played by Eric Mabius, who I've loved since I was a teenager. I think I first saw him in Todd Solondz's Welcome to the Dollhouse, and then shortly thereafter as Shane Carver in Black Circle Boys, in which he just completely won me over as an actor. Uh, little side note, by the way, I've written a review of Black Circle Boys, which you can now find on my website, finalgirlfriday.net. It's barely a website, but it is a website, damn it, and I hope to keep posting the reviews there that don't make it into my podcast script, so check it out if you want. I digress, shamefully, and I apologize. In Voodoo Moon, Mabius plays Cole, a scarred-up, trench-coat-wearing vanquisher of evil who feels much more like a fever dream of a person than an actual person, kind of like a guy who went on a shopping spree at Hot Topic right after watching The Crow. Cole is on a mission, hunting down a smarmy, smooth-talking devil played by Rick Young, and uh, he's joined on this journey by his psychically inclined sister Heather, played by the criminally underused Charisma Carpenter, as well as a small gang of misfits, all of whom were helped by Cole at some point in their past. Cole uses his own telepathic abilities to rally these allies to a remote farmhouse where they prepare for the final battle against the King of Hell. If that plot sounds a little familiar, it could be because Van Hook took direct inspiration for this film from Stephen King's The Stand. And jumping back to The Crow for a second, while he never cited it directly, to my recollection, I would also guess he took quite a few notes from it as well. And it's these two inspirations that contribute greatly to the overall dated feeling of the film. This doesn't feel like something that was made in the 21st century. Voodoo Moon feels much more like it was made in the early to mid-90s at best, which could also partly explain why I love it so much. I adore 90s horror movies, even the ones that aren't at all scary and actually came out in the early 2000s. In addition to Van Hook, Voodoo Moon was produced by the same team that brought us Masters of Horror, which, coupled with its ties to Lionsgate by way of IDT Entertainment and several of its seasoned genre cast members, it's definitely a close cousin of the horror genre. It just feels more like the pilot episode of a soap opera than a scary movie. As I mentioned earlier, there are zombies in the film in the more historic Haitian sense, and a couple of people are attacked and either killed or badly wounded by crows, but... That's about as far as it goes in terms of scares. Most of the film's tension is unfortunately taxed by the drama. There is such an excessive amount of drama, as well as the heavy-handed and somewhat manic nature of the score. The music is all over the place in Voodoo Moon. It cannot decide what kind of movie it wants to be, and as a result, it is having some sort of ongoing musical existential crisis. So... I guess the question I'm asking myself right now is why do I love it so much? I mean, yes, it feels dated and I appreciate that. And I, and I do like that Kevin Van Hook really poured himself into this. And it does feature several actors that I have loved for most of my life, but it's still a hot fucking mess of a movie. So why, why does it make me so happy? I have no idea. So without any further ado, let's dive into the movie. 
The film opens in Haiti one year ago. We see a small group of men talking who suddenly realize they need to get gone and into the frame wanders our cool leather-clad hero, slowly making his way along the side of a building, arm extended with some sort of talisman in his hand. Right away, we are given the most important bit of information that this film has to offer. Cole is cool. He's cooler than being cool, actually. He's ice cold. Or ice coal, if you will. I'm so sorry. If you take nothing else away from this film, take away that Cole is cool. It was clearly the most important thing to Van Hook, and it oozes out of every corner of every scene in which his character appears. Here at the start, he's accompanied by the cawing of crows, which we'll hear a lot moving forward, and he's being shadowed by a pale, silent man who appears and disappears at odd intervals as Cole makes his way across a clearing towards some kind of grain silo. Cole drops the talisman on the ground like a mic, reaches into his jacket, and pulls out a second, smaller talisman, which he then hurls onto the ground in slow motion, igniting the grass, sending a trail of CG fire toward the silo, and blowing it up. Time reverses, the flames disappear, the silo is fine, and we get a close-up of Cole's mouth as he whispers something that sounds a lot like Latin, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, I'm not a linguist by, by any stretch, but there is a reason why I'm fixated on the words he's speaking here. So one of the words he uses is sanctorum, which is a Latin word meaning the holy place. Uh, and another is basilicum, also Latin, but it means the royal robe. And then he uses another word, permutum, which isn't a word in any language as far as I can tell. I think he was trying to say permuto, uh, which means to alter or transform, which would mean that the sentence he whispers would roughly translate to, in this holy place, I'll change my clothes. If it seems like I'm thinking way too hard about this, it, it's because I am, but also because Cole's use of artifacts and languages, rituals associated with various world religions, both historic and contemporary, was an extremely significant detail to Van Hook. Cole has, at the beginning of our story, faced off against and beaten the devil several times, but each time, the victory is temporary, and nothing he's tried has gotten rid of him for good. And so, over the years, he's developed a kind of patchwork defense, which borrows from Christianity, Hellenism, Wicca, and so on. This is a guy who knows religion, so this... <laughs> Slightly nonsensical Latin during the opening exorcism of the film just it <laughs> simultaneously bothers me and cracks me up. Either way, as he mutters this phrase, the pale man is standing right behind him. Cole pulls a holy Bible out from his jacket next and holds it out in front of him. He whips around and shoots both lightning and fire from the book. I'm not, I'm not making it up. This is how the story starts. The man, who as it turns out is the devil, is instantly electrocuted and burned and turns to ash on the ground, after which Cole collapses because shooting lightning from the Bible is exhausting. A Haitian man approaches, kneeling down to place a hand on Cole's shoulder, declaring that Cole has beaten him again as a ring of fire, also CG, forms around them. The man stands and laughs, a laugh which echoes as we pan up and skip ahead to present day. Still in Haiti, we see the laughing man, whose name is Jean-Pierre, by the way, played by David Jean Thomas. He's performing some sort of Yoruba divination ritual, uh, which was heavily researched by the actor. He wanted to make sure that the ritual he performed was as authentic as possible, and Van Hook was very amenable to that. So most of what we see in this scene came directly from Thomas. Jean-Pierre sees something during this ritual that upsets him, so he runs to Cole's house. He bangs on the door, and when Cole answers, he already knows why he's there. The devil is returning, and this time it will be worse than ever before. 
Another quick note about the whole using lots of religions to fight evil thing. I do really like that idea. I think it's a neat concept. And I like that behind Cole, all over his house in Haiti, are talismans and various bits and baubles from religions and spiritual practices. There's a Buddha statue, Catholic prayer candles, and even Twana-esque figures, not entirely unlike the ones we see in the Blair Witch Project. I just think it's neat that Van Hook wanted to showcase the relevance of a multitude of belief systems and rituals. I'm a fan of that detail. Cole tells Jean-Pierre that he knows the devil is coming and that he has to go home to beat him. And as he disappears into the house to presumably prepare for his trip back to America, we get an edgy title card leading into the opening credits. This opening credit sequence is very made for TV, with funky text over various graphics of notebook pages and drawings. The latter are meant to pay tribute to Cole's sister, who we soon learn is an artist. The music here is very energetic and adventurous, featuring a choir of voices that suggest a lot more action forthcoming than we actually see. Once the credits end, we find ourselves in an art gallery in New Orleans. We get a POV moving through a crowd of spectators and see various paintings, landing on two women, one of which is the artist, Heather, played by Charisma Carpenter, standing in front of a portrait of Cole. The woman she's talking with compliments the portrait and then remarks that it's a good likeness, which confuses Heather until she realizes Cole was seen skulking around by the gallery entrance. She excuses herself and goes to him, where he's leaning against the wall holding flowers. At this point, when I first watched this film, I thought instantly that these two were a couple, especially with the flowers and how playful they are with each other, but it turns out that it's his sister, and I won't pretend I wasn't a little disappointed. If you have Eric Mabius and Charisma Carpenter on screen together, they should be a couple, Kevin. Their chemistry demands it. Either way, Cole gives Heather the flowers, and the two stare intensely at each other, you know, the way siblings do, and then it's the next day, I think. Heather and Cole are visiting an above-ground cemetery so Heather can pay her respects to their Aunt Betty before they leave for Tennessee. We don't see or hear them discussing leaving town or why they need to go to Tennessee or even their Aunt Betty prior to this. It just sort of happens very quickly. But there is a deleted scene of the two of them at Heather's apartment having a much deeper discussion about their childhoods, particularly Cole's, which adds context to a remark he makes at the graveyard about how he shouldn't visit Betty's grave. Basically, Cole was a troubled kid who never recovered from his parents being murdered by Satan, naturally, and he and Betty butted heads a lot. Anyway, back at the cemetery, Heather tells Cole that she knew he was coming for a month, which surprises Cole, which surprises me, because he clearly knows she's psychic, but the audience doesn't know it yet. She leaves Cole to wander around the cemetery, which he does, and in doing so, he comes across a little girl who giggles a lot and leads him through a maze of graves in a hilariously badly shot chase scene, where Cole walks into the frame, sees the girl, starts running, and then we cut to him walking again, sees the girl running cut to walking, and this goes on for quite some time. More choir voices accompany this chase, as well as a cawing of crows, and what's happening here is that this is an actual little girl, not a ghost or a vision, who has been possessed by the devil. He isn't trying to hurt Cole, however, he's really just kind of messing with him. Cole loses sight of the girl for good, and then we see a groundskeeper angrily trim a single bush for about three seconds, and then stalk off screen, and that is Kevin Van Hook's cameo. Even Kevin couldn't say why the groundskeeper was so grumpy. It was just a choice he made, and I'm glad that he made it. <laughs> he heads into a workshed nearby and leaves his shears on a table, which are then picked up by a tiny hand and carried away. Soon after, we see his utterly god-awful CG-severed head cradled in the arms of a statue in the cemetery as Cole and Heather drive off. It, it's just some of the worst CG I've 
ever seen. And that's saying something. It's so bad. They could have just taken like a cantaloupe and painted Kevin Van Hook's face on it and set that in the statue's arms. And it probably would have looked on par with what we actually ended up seeing. Next, we cut to a garage somewhere. This this happens a lot. We're introduced to various people from Cole's past that are being called to action by him telepathically, but almost no attention is drawn to that fact directly, and we're given very little indication of where any of these people are. This is a huge source of confusion upon first watching this film. There's a lot of like, who the hell is this now, and why am I watching them? In this garage that is somewhere in the United States, we meet Dutch, easily one of the best characters in the film, played by John Amos. Dutch is an ex-con and a biker who Cole helped at some point, somehow, we never learn the details, and we're introduced to him by way of a dirty joke about penguins. The mechanic rises out from under the hood, looks at the penguin and says, Buddy, looks like you blew a seal. Penguin says, Oh no, that's just ice cream. Kevin Van Hook thought this joke was so funny, he had to put it in a movie at some point in his career. He knew he wanted to put it somewhere. This is the film that drew the short straw. Dutch is telling this joke to two guys named Bobby and Ed, and Bobby is cracking up and periodically repeating whatever Dutch says, which is annoying him, and it's a genuinely funny scene. Not not the joke. The joke is it's just a generic joke about penguin sex, but Bobby getting such a huge kick out of it, and Dutch's face as he grows more and more annoyed by him, actually did make me laugh. Dutch finishes the joke, and it slays the guys, uh, and then to a very subtle audible cue, Dutch's demeanor changes. He leaves the guys abruptly and goes out to a semi-truck where a friend of his named Sally is servicing a trucker in the front seat. He opens the door, interrupting her work, and tells her he needs to borrow her gun. They bicker about this for a moment, but he takes the gun anyway, then turns around and looks to the sky. After seeing the film a few times, I understand now that Cole is calling Dutch to Maryfield, Tennessee. But seriously, I had no idea what was happening the first time I saw this. It's all done with such vagary and not in an artful way. It just makes Dutch seem nuts. I hear you, little brother. I'm coming as soon as I can. He leaves, and we cut back to the car where Heather and Cole are now driving and talking about what happened to their parents. Sort of. We get some cryptic exposition here about how the devil killed their mom and dad and Aunt Betty didn't believe him. Again, this is all much clearer in the deleted scene. He then explains how he's learned to pull from various religions and spiritual practices in his exorcisms and that that's made him stronger. Heather doesn't seem to know until this moment that Cole has devoted his entire life to beating the devil, which, I mean, okay... <laughs> There's so much of that in this, you know? It's like Cole sort of knows that his sister is psychic when it's convenient, but then he doesn't know when something needs to be elaborated on. These people are in, like, what, their late 20s, 30s? I find it odd that Heather wouldn't be aware of what Cole has been doing for the majority of his life. Cole also mentions very briefly that he is calling some friends to help them. All through this discussion, Heather, who's in the passenger seat, is sketching crows in her sketchbook. When Cole asks about them, she states that they're just birds, failing to mention that they are also pecking someone to death in the sketch, then asks what the word is to describe a bunch of crows. When she remembers that the word is murder, we get flashes of Jean-Pierre back in Haiti, who it turns out is being murdered exactly as it's being depicted in Heather's drawing. Van Hook originally wanted to call this film a murder of crows, actually, which would have been, I mean, I think definitely more fitting for the content throughout, but that title was already taken, so he went with Voodoo Moon. 
Somehow, Cole can feel Jean-Pierre's death, which hurts him and freaks him out, so he pulls the car over, toppling out as Heather runs to help him. He explains who Jean-Pierre was and declares that it's the devil's work, that he's going to hunt down and kill people who have helped him, people that he might turn to for help. Heather hugs him, and then we cut to a house. Somewhere else. A woman is lying in a bathtub, cucumbers over her eyes, grooving to the sounds of some very old-timey bluegrassy country on a radio plugged in on the other side of the bathroom. The door to the room opens slowly, seemingly by itself, which she doesn't notice, and suddenly her two-year-old son is picking up the stereo and taking it over to the tub. He's stopped by his father, or the man we think is his father, who scoops him up, unplugging the radio, while the woman asks what happened. They have a kind of tender family moment while the child screams his head off, and then the man leaves to scold the boy. While he's doing that, the woman, whose name is Lola, played by Jane Heitmeyer, gets dressed and goes out to her car, in which she drives away, looking like she's in a lot of emotional pain. This is one of those moments where the score thinks that the movie is a soap opera, and it would be an emotional moment, I think, if we knew anything at all about these people, or had seen any solid indication that Lola was called away. I also feel really badly for the little boy through this whole scene, as he's clearly looking around for his actual parents and is not happy that he can't find them. Oh, and as a side note, when Lola's husband gets back up to look for her, we get a close-up stationary shot of his crotch and him just adjusting his shirt, which was riding up. So Lola drives off, and what this does for me is make Lola seem like a complete asshole. Her kid is screaming, her husband is calling out after her on the lawn, confused, and she hasn't told him anything. She just gets in her car and goes. That's kind of Lola. She's a teensy bit of a garbage person. I don't think she's supposed to be an unlikable character, but in my opinion, she really is. Back with Heather and Cole, they've stopped at a hotel so Cole can rest off Jean-Pierre's death. Heather leads Cole to the bed, where she takes off his shoes, and they have one of my favorite exchanges of dialogue in the film. Genuinely, I really enjoy it. Cole states that if she's taking his boots off, it must mean he's not dying, and when she asks about it, he explains that he's supposed to die with his boots on. She then tells him that that's a rule for cowboys, not exorcists. While wetting a cloth for Cole's forehead, Heather has a vision of a black-clad man poised over him in bed with what I think is a knife. It happens too quickly to make out the details, but what we do see is that he's wearing a leather Renaissance Festival-style arm cuff, which is oddly important. She calls Cole's name, but when she turns around, the man is gone. Despite the fact that he looked like the lead singer of a 90s alt-rock band, that man was, in fact, the devil. Cole didn't hear Heather calling out to him, so she shakes it off and goes to put the cloth on his forehead, which also hurts him? I'm, I'm not sure why. The music here, by the way, I don't hate. It feels like a horror score here for a couple of minutes, fitting well within the context provided by the film. As Cole sleeps, Heather sits down and looks through her sketchbook, landing on a drawing of a man wearing the same arm cuff we just saw who has been impaled on a cross. The man's face is unfinished. We then pan up to Cole, who we now realize is also wearing the exact same arm cuff. Then we move again to another one of Cole's allies, and I'm thrilled because it's Jeffrey fucking Combs. His character's name is Frank Taggart, but we're not actually told that until much later in the film, which is also something that happens quite often throughout Voodoo Moon. So my first time through, I just called him Detective Jeffrey, even though it makes no sense because Frank and his partner Billy were named specifically as a hat tip to Beverly Hills Cop. So draw attention to their names, Kevin. <clears throat> Frank is, in fact, a detective who has also been called away by Cole and is packing his things as his wife asks him questions. Unlike Lola, Frank actually explains to his wife that he has to leave and why, like a decent human being would, and we get a flashback of the incident which indebted him to Cole. And this flashback is fabulous, one of my favorite parts of the film by far, because it is just so ridiculous. 
<laughs> the lead into the flashback, everything that's about to happen at the church. It is so goofy. And yet, Jeffrey is there acting his ass off because that's what he does. I could watch this series of scenes just over and over again, I, and I think it would take me quite a while to get tired of them if, if I ever did it all. Frank tells his wife, Helen, that she doesn't know the whole story about what happened to his partner and proceeds to tell her how years earlier, he and Billy were investigating church vandalisms, which led them to a particular church where they spotted a potential suspect. Frank took off after the guy who ran around the back of the building and disappeared. Billy went into the church, where a priest appeared to be torturing a young woman by way of teeny tiny scratches. In contrast to the music at the hotel, the music here is so over-the-top, very dramatic orchestral stuff, as Billy slowly draws his gun and aims it at the priest, who turns and levitates Billy with his mind, disarming him in the process. This priest, you see, is possessed by the devil, and anyone who is possessed by the devil in this film can do pretty much anything that Van Hook wanted them to be able to do. They don't actually seem to adhere to any, like, laws or rules at all. <laughs> and in this case, the possessed priest levitates Billy, disarms him, empties the bullets from his now fully CG gun, and then turns them on Billy, flicking them at him, again with his mind, but also with his fingers. <laughs> And as they hit Billy's chest, we hear stock sound effects of actual gunfire. It is so beautiful. I don't... It's simply one of the stupidest decisions I think I've ever seen a filmmaker make. But I'm so, so glad that whoever wanted to add gunfire sounds to those that bullet flicking, I'm so glad they did it. It's fucking priceless. Frank runs in at the tail end of this. And when the priest flicks a bullet at him and misses, he turns and runs away. Billy died from the gunshot flicking bullet whizzing, but he was then reanimated and used as an instrument of the devil, which is when Cole arrived and took him down. Frank then promised Cole that he would help him if he ever needed it. Back at the hotel the next morning, Heather wakes up to find Cole up and about, and the two flirt with each other, like siblings do. Then Cole elaborates a little more about the connection he shared with Jean-Pierre and his experience when he died. They also talk briefly about the different powers they have. Heather, with her ability to draw things that are happening or will happen, and Cole having some kind of telepathy. It seems like this, where I just want to shake Eric Mabius by the shoulders and demand that he emote. I just want him to exhibit any kind of human emotion, but I know that he was directed not to, because he's cooler than being cool. It would have diminished that, that edgy factor, so I just I have to get over it and move on. Cole is suddenly struck by a headache while a little old lady picks up a fork from outside a nearby door and waddles toward their room, falling to her knees at some point and scooting the rest of the way. When Heather leaves to go get Cole some aspirin, the lady stabs her in the leg with the fork and then runs away giggling. Apparently, Van Hook's original vision for the scene was to have the old woman crawl on her hands and knees to the room the whole way, but that was ultimately deemed too disturbing. <laughs> They close the door and Cole tends to Heather's leg, explaining to her that it's the devil possessing people. And we also get my other favorite line from the film. You, know, you can't just cluck me out of my life to have me fight some psychic holy war against the devil. Cole casually mentions that another one of his friends was killed the night before, a woman. To my knowledge, we never saw this happen, and I don't remember there being a deleted scene of it. I could be mistaken about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he just slips it in there. And that's, that's something else. So many of the lines in this script feel like afterthoughts. Things that were added later to not necessarily pad the runtime, but just sort of flesh things out a little bit after the fact. And, and maybe also to 
provide answers to questions that Van Hook or the production team might have thought audience members would ask. I don't know. It's just there's a lot of afterthought. Anyway, Heather and Cole leave the hotel and continue on toward Tennessee. Then we cut back to Frank again, and we get to see that purposeful Jeffrey swagger that I love so much as he leaves his car in a motel parking lot and heads toward where I imagine he was planning to stay for the night. A woman stops him at the top of the stairs, however, and shoves him gently, which sends him toppling over to yet still more dramatic music, and Frank dies. Initially, when I saw this film, I was pissed. Do not tell me Jeffrey Combs is in your film and then kill him off at a hotel like 10 minutes after introducing him. That's unfair and it hurts my feelings, but never fear, he'll be back. Frank Frank will be back. Yes, he is dead, but uh, death is not the end. <laughs> back in the car with Cole and Heather, they determine that they're lost, so they stop for directions at a gas station slash flea market slash auto dealership. I honestly cannot tell. And the music shifts to something much more like standish. Two older men in overalls are sitting down outside when they pull up, and we get a long exchange between the four of them about the kid's hometown of Merrifield. Evidently, Cole's parents weren't the only people in Merrifield who were murdered back in the day. 200 people were massacred there, essentially leaving Cole and Heather as two of only a handful of survivors. The folks of the surrounding towns were dealing with a drought, and since Merrifield was virtually empty, they flooded it, turning it into a lake and a monument to those who died. One of the older men reads this story to them from a newspaper article, and he keeps commenting on how well the article is written, and it's kind of adorable. As he reads, we fade into the lake, where Cole and Heather have gone to see it for themselves. Smack in the middle of the lake, poking up out of the water, is a church steeple topped with an enormous cross. And now we're back with Frank again, who, yes, died, but has somehow gotten up and boarded a bus to Tennessee. There are flies buzzing around him, and according to a woman seated across from him, he smells pretty bad. His head is cocked to the side, and he's looking pretty rough. He tries to blow one of the flies away, but since he's dead, he doesn't really have the energy for it. Luckily, it gets bored and flies away on its own. So Frank is a zombie, but I don't know why or how. And he isn't evil, which we'll learn as we go on. He's determined to get to Cole and to help him. I have absolutely no idea how this magic works. All I know is that Frank looks more and more like Edgar from Men in Black as we move forward. You know what I'm talking about. The guy from the beginning of the movie, the sugar water guy. Give me sugar and water. Yeah, that's Frank for the rest of the movie. Now we're back in Tennessee at a small bed and breakfast called Mary Ann's, somewhere outside of what used to be Maryfield. Cole is back to being in pain, and Heather carries him up the stairs as a very sedated Dee Wallace asks them questions, and Cole announces he'll be renting all of her rooms. Upon first viewing, it's impossible to tell that Cole and Marianne have known each other since Cole was a child. She just seems sleepy and not entirely happy to have guests. However, Marianne is one of the people Cole has helped. Heather takes Cole up to a room, and then we're back at the gas station, slash flea market, slash auto dealership, where we actually meet the devil, as he seems to have skinned the two older men from earlier alive and brought them back as evil zombies. Not Jeffrey zombies, but evil zombies. He has suspended them from big hooks and is monologuing to them about how they let him down. The devil, whose name is Daniel, by the way, though we won't learn his name until much, much later, is a sleek-looking English kid. By the looks of him, he's like a sophomore in college who apparently tasked these men, uh, who I guess were responsible for the murders in Merrifield, with guarding the town and preventing Cole from going back there. But they failed to do that, so he is now punishing them. 
He also explains that now that Cole has seen the lake, the final battle has been set in motion, and he seems a little preoccupied by Cole's decision to bring Heather along. Back at Marianne's, Heather puts Cole into bed, and they finally make out. I'm just kidding. They never make out, and it kills me. Cole explains that he reached out with his mind, trying to make contact with Dutch, and in the process made contact with the devil. That's, I imagine, why he's so weak. Heather leaves to go take a shower, and in comes Marianne with a wash basin, and this is where we learn that they know each other. This is also where we learn that Marianne has some serious Reiki mojo happening. Cole has a wound on his back, which happens, I guess, when his friends die. Marianne refers to it as a variation on the stigmata. It's the first of several comparisons she makes between Cole and Jesus. She presses a cloth into the wound and concentrates really hard, which heals it on the spot. She also senses something else is wrong (laughs) and discerns that he has a brain tumor, which she then takes away by touching his forehead. He has a tumor in his head, which apparently was developed after Jean-Pierre died. Like, it's a brand new thing, and it's why he's been having headaches. And she just casually takes the tumor out of his brain with her mind. They talk briefly about this power that she has and why she doesn't use it more often. Another afterthought. She explains that it doesn't really work on most people. Then they talk about the incident that indebted her to Cole. When Cole was a little boy, Marianne was having an affair and was in bed with her lover while her husband was being murdered. The people responsible for her husband's death were going to kill her too, but Cole kept her hidden and safe. She then compares him to Jesus again, pointing out the irony of his preventing the men from stoning an adulteress. Now we cut to Dutch, who is riding around on his motorcycle, looking for the bed and breakfast, but because Cole was shaken up by his encounter with the devil when trying to reach out to him, um, the communication has been cut off, I guess, so Dutch is lost. He talks to the sky for a second, and then I guess that gets Cole's attention, because then he smiles and then tells the sky that he's about five miles away. As he drives off, we pan up into a large tree where the devil is perched. He drops down and turns into a murder of crows. Lola has apparently already arrived at the B&B, along with several other friends of Cole's, although we didn't see any of this happen, and we have no sense of how much time has passed. It's also difficult to tell that it even is the B&B, as all we had seen of it thus far were the front porch and the stairs leading up to the rooms, and most of the rest of the film takes place in the living room, kitchen, and backyard. But that's where they are. I'm sure of it. And Lola greets Dutch at the door when he arrives. We get some introductions, though not all of them. We meet Ray, played by Reynaldo Gallegos, I think, and Frank Collison's character, Mac, who is essentially mute in this because, of course, he is. Of course, you would have Frank Collison in your movie and give him no lines. (sighs) Kevin! There's also a woman whose name is Diana, but again, we really don't learn for sure that that's her name until much later on. And that's outrageous because she's a very important character. She's played by Kim Hawthorne, and she and John Amos have some fun chemistry. I really like a lot of her lines and the way she delivers them. What's your story, darling? I got five years for stabbing this jackass biker for calling me darling. Oh, no, wait a second, that didn't happen yet. It pisses me off that the script drew absolutely no attention to what her character's name was. Dutch then meets Heather, who walks in to let us know for sure that they are at the B&B. Then Heather asks Lola to help her in the kitchen. Dutch and Ray play cards, while Marianne, Heather, and Lola talk for a few minutes about the housework that needs to be done. Marianne leaves to go do laundry in the basement, and she seems scared and reluctant to go, and I can't for the life of me figure out why. Dee Wallace is such an extraordinary actress. I just, I have to wonder what was going on in her mind 
for the character of Marianne at this moment, her behavior going down into the laundry room baffles me. And as many times as I've seen this film, I just, I can't put my finger on where it comes from. Before she goes downstairs, Diana appears in the kitchen with a big bag of trash and asks where she should take it out. And Marianne instructs her to take it out back to a barrel on the edge of the cornfield. Oh, this B&B also has a cornfield. Marianne disappears down the basement steps and Diana goes outside. When she gets to the edge of the field, she is attacked by a murder of crows who chase her back into the house. When she tries to tell everyone what happened, Dutch writes it off, making fun of her, this would have been a good moment for Heather to explain what happened to Jean-Pierre or, or even better, for Cole to wake up from his like two day long nap and talk to his friends. But neither of these things happens. So Diana, having now been made fun of and feeling understandably a little freaked out, goes upstairs to lie down. Oh, also Heather cuts herself while doing the dishes and Lola goes to get a kit to patch her up. Marianne is downstairs in the basement singing an old song about sinners. It's so nice to hear Dee Wallace singing, by the way. It's definitely one of my favorite things that happens in the film is just that quick, soft little song. And then the devil appears behind her. We get a few static shots of various tools in the basement that could easily be used as weapons, but the devil appears right behind Marianne, grabs her by the hair, and cuts off her head with a small scythe. He finishes the song for her by speaking the last word, which is slain. Upstairs, both Cole and Diana are sleeping in separate rooms, and both appear to be dreaming of what I imagine is the incident that indebted Diana to Cole, although they never actually say this, and there are absolutely no details here whatsoever. Also, because it's a dream and they're using a fisheye lens for most of it, it's hard to suss out what's happening exactly. A family is in a house along with a priest, and in a room off of the main room is an elderly woman who appears to be possessed. Cole enters and tries to exercise her, and suddenly there's a baby in the room, first in a bed beside the woman, then in the woman's arms. For whatever reason, Cole is unable to exercise her, and she starts shaking and convulsing while holding the baby. And then Diana walks in, I think. The lighting is super inconsistent and it doesn't feel like the same room, but she looks horrified. And when we cut back to where the old woman was sitting, she and the baby are gone. Cole wakes up and says, I'm sorry, Diana. What I gather here is that Diana's grandmother was possessed and she stole her baby. That's, that's my best guess. I have no confirmation thereof, and we also get no reaction from Diana to this dream. Back in the kitchen with Lola and Heather, we have come to what for me is the most boring scene in the film. I just, I really couldn't care less about it, mostly because I cannot stand the character of Lola. And this whole scene in the kitchen where she's patching Heather up is where we learn about Lola's past and her connection to Cole. So firstly, Lola used to be a meth addict, and along with some of her friends, she toyed around with a summoning ritual and was attacked in a barn by the devil. He tried to trick her into killing her friends, and she did think about it, evidently, but Cole arrived and beat him back before she had the chance. And then, I, I don't know why, I, I guess his heart just went out to Lola. They had some sort of undeniable chemistry that is not at all present in like the two scenes they have together. However or why ever it happened, he stayed with Lola in Arizona while she got clean and the two had a relationship for about a year. The little boy we saw when we were first introduced to her, it turns out, is Cole's son. That connection is never brought up again and it goes absolutely nowhere. Lola thankfully gets called away to join Dutch and Ray in their card game, leaving Heather alone in the kitchen when the devil appears at the top of the basement steps. Resting at his feet is a laundry basket, which now contains Marianne's severed head. Heather doesn't notice this, and the devil introduces himself as Daniel. 55 minutes into the film, and we finally have something to call him. 
He claims he's just another one of Cole's allies, and Heather believes him, so the two sit down at the table to talk. I think the lesson here is one of social niceties. Cole isn't even asleep anymore, by the way. He's just upstairs studying for his battle, and he hasn't come down to say hello to any of the people who've come all this way to help him. If Cole weren't being so rude, he might have been able to fight the devil right then and there. So, be nice. If a bunch of people drive hundreds of miles to help you kill the devil, just take a few minutes out of your day to greet them and thank them for coming. At the card table, we get a little bit of banter between Ray and Dutch when there's a knock at the door. Lola gets super attitudinal about having to answer it. Yeah, yeah. I got it! At the door, a cab driver is there to deliver Frank Taggart, who's in even worse shape now than he was before. Apparently, he got into the cab and just kept asking for coal, so the cabbie decided to drive around for three hours, knocking on doors, looking for a guy named Cole. He also only took $50 out of Frank's wallet to pay for this trip. I just, I feel like, I feel like this guy doesn't quite know how to cab drive. 58 minutes into the movie, Lola looks at Frank's driver's license and we learn his character's name. 58 minutes into the movie. Kevin! Kevin, why? So Frank holds up his badge and croaks that he's late, and Lola lets him in. This would also be another swell time for Cole to come downstairs, but but he doesn't. Heather and Daniel sit cozily in the kitchen and chat for a bit about Cole and Heather's drawings. He questions her about why Cole brought her along. As I said, he's very preoccupied by this. He kind of keeps going back to that well. And we learn a little bit more about Heather's understanding of her prophetic ability, which remains vague. We see that she's done multiple drawings, similar to the one we saw before, of the faceless man impaled on the cross, and she explains that she doesn't know who he is. Daniel tells her he wonders if she isn't drawing things before they happen, but that they happen because she draws them. This shakes her up, so he backtracks, and then tells her he wants to show her the harvest moon outside. This is kind of where the moon comes in. Again, afterthought. They, they made no mention of the harvest moon through most of this film. Uh, Dee Wallace's character did mention something about a harvest festival, but we don't actually realize that it is a harvest moon or that the harvest moon is important. So important, in fact, that the devil has like a ritual that adheres to this harvest moon. We don't learn about any of that until right now. <laughs> Daniel wants to show Heather the moon, and she wants to see it, so they walk out toward the cornfield together. Cole is still upstairs, channeling world religion energy into himself, getting stronger. And we actually do get a nice shot of him practicing or honing or whatever you want to call it. And he's seeing flashes in his mind of all the people the devil has killed. He seems to get the sense that Daniel is close by and he goes to check the window where he sees his sister walking with him. It's at this point that Heather and Daniel have reached the edge of the field. We get a quick shot of the gang in the kitchen, Frank waddling toward them as Cole does a barrel roll out of the upstairs window and lands on the lawn. The gang hears this and everyone springs into action, running out of the house, and then Frank turns around and waddles after them in the opposite direction. <laughs> It's precious. It's funny. I really do love the character of Frank Taggart. He feels completely out of place in the rest of the film, unfortunately. I feel like this whole character concept would have landed so much better in a different movie, but it's, it's one of my favorite things about the film. Heather doesn't seem to have heard this commotion, but she does realize in that moment who Daniel is. He denies it, but suddenly Cole is sprinting across the field, shouting, Dutch! He has Heather! And then Dutch peels toward the cornfield on his motorcycle, saying, I'm on it, little brother! I just, I don't even know if I can do justice to how great that moment is. Dutch tries to attack Daniel with a chain, but is instead thrown from his bike and hurled into the field. Cole tackles Daniel and holds him down by the wrists, and then the two exchange Bible quotes. 
like you do. The devil makes it rain rocks and turns his hands into what I'm pretty sure are supposed to be snakes, but they look a lot more like vines, and they certainly act like vines as they wrap around Heather's legs. Heather, by the way, is just standing casually nearby, looking out over the field and doesn't even seem to notice that Cole is there. I don't know if she's enthralled or if it's just bad direction, but I do know that it's one of those two things. Lola tries to save Heather, but in vain, as she's dragged into the corn and lifted up by the vine snakes. Ray starts frantically cutting off the devil's fingers, and it's still raining rocks, but it looks like there are just three guys on ladders off screen, gently tossing the rocks down at the actors at an angle. <laughs> Once Daniel's fingers are severed, his hands go back to being normal hands, and the vines drop Heather in the corn. Daniel continues quoting the Bible, then rips the arm cuff off of Cole's arm, which somehow allows the devil to disappear. As unsure as I am about things like zombie Jeffrey, I am the most unsure about how Daniel magic works. Sometimes he can disappear, sometimes he can't. Sometimes he's limited by the laws of physics, sometimes he isn't. Sometimes his hands are snakes. Sometimes they're not. I don't know. It's, it's, it's strange magic. Another murder of crows flies up out of the field, and this time the birds are joined by more evil zombies, some wielding pitchforks, and one of the older men from earlier, Daniel's lackey, comes at Lola with a large scythe. He's about to kill her when Diana shoots him, knocking him down. Ray fights off a couple of zombies, and Lola, having gotten back up on her feet, has taken the scythe from the lackey and is using it to chop off some heads. Meanwhile, Mac, you remember Mac, Frank Collison, is wandering across the field, picking up Heather's sketchbook along the way and taking it into the corn. Cole tries to stop him, but Mac insists that the devil has promised he'll get to see his wife, Bessie, again. Mac then disappears. Through this big battle, Cole is using his psychic powers to, like, levitate and throw people left and right, and it does look very cool. As his friends fight, Cole wakes up the zombie Diana shot and questions him about where Daniel would have taken Heather. He took her to the lake that used to be Merrifield. He also tells Cole that he will die there and confesses to the murder of his parents. Cole then uses his mind to kill the zombie. Dutch sees some action, Ray gets sucked into the corn, and Diana, I think, runs after him. And then we get this fantastic transition where the fight i assume ends and everybody that's left goes back into the house the screen goes black and we just hear dutch we'll find a little brother trust me we'll find why cole didn't just go right to the lake i have no idea but it's the next morning now and dutch lola frank and cole are in the kitchen having coffee Dutch comes up from the basement, saying he found Marianne's body downstairs without a head, and Lola casually mentions she found her head in the laundry basket and put it outside. Why didn't you say something, Lola? God, I fucking hate Lola. I don't like her character at all. Cole explains that Daniel isn't going to hurt Heather because he's too ritualistic, and points out that tonight is the harvest moon. As I said, suddenly the moon is very important. He then tells them he's going upstairs to lie down, and Lola goes up after him. Dutch asks Frank if he wants to play cards, and Frank slumps down in a kitchen chair and simply says again, I'm late. Upstairs, we get a kind of precursor to softcore porn scene where Lola is sitting on top of Cole's back, giving him a massage or looking at his scars, I, I don't know, wearing only a thong and what I think is meant to be one of his shirts. And she has this terribly fake tattoo of a heart with a knife through it on her left ass cheek. It looks like something you'd get out of a quarter machine at a grocery store. It is so, 
It is, it is quite simply awful and completely unnecessary. If you couldn't get a realistic looking tattoo, just don't put a tattoo on her butt. She doesn't need one. We know her character has edge. It's, it's okay. The lighting during this scene is painfully bright and soft, and the music is very windswept and romantic, and the whole thing just feels so ridiculous. The two of them talk about Cole's powers and the fact that Lola is kind of turned on by them, and then he turns around and they talk about more stuff that I, I just couldn't care less about, and then I guess they have sex? I don't actually know it cuts away before anything happens. Thank the gods. Now we're at the lake, where Daniel has tied up Heather, Ray, Diana, and a random fourth woman, who is apparently another survivor of the Merrifield Massacre, but solely exists so that we can see Daniel kill someone who isn't a main cast member. There are several lackeys hanging around as Daniel gives another monologue about Heather's parents and the murders and Cole, and he asks again why Heather came along. He also admits that he's gotten a lot stronger. He does a kind of Negan-type thing where you're not quite sure which of the characters he's going to kill, but of course, he kills the unnamed woman that we've never seen before. Later that night, Lola and Dutch fill the bed of Ray's truck with weapons, and Cole tells everyone that they're free to leave if they would like. Lola demonstrates the fine art of taking things for granted when she declares that her family will still be home waiting for her when she's done helping Cole. So they all pile into the truck and head to the lake. Daniel is in the middle of threatening both Ray and Diana when the cavalry arrives, and Dutch and Lola jump out of the back of the truck with guns, while Cole rams into Daniel and drives into the lake. Lola and Dutch start taking out the zombie lackeys, and then we get a little bit of fun underwater stuff. The truck, Cole, and Daniel sink to the bottom of the lake, where we see the ruins of Maryfield. Before we can get a really good look at it, though, we're back up on land, where another lackey moves on Heather. He's shot, and we see Frank standing there with his gun. He yells, freeze, after the zombie has already dropped to the ground. <laughs> I, I love Frank. Cole and Daniel then rise up out of the lake and hover above the water, facing one another to music reminiscent of that from the opening credits. The camera pans around, and we have made it to the final battle. Heather watches from the shore as Cole looks down into the water at the remains of their hometown. Daniel sees this as an opportunity, shooting fire out of his hands and hitting Cole back a few feet. Cole then pulls out a pagan talisman and quotes the Bible some more, shooting his magical holy lightning at the devil, which also hits. Then we get another close-up of Cole's mouth as he completes the passage. Sort of. While this is happening, Dutch and Lola are still running around shooting zombies and freeing Diana. Also, Lola looks like she is having way too much fun shooting people. I'm just throwing that out there. Next on the list to be saved is Ray, but they're too late. His eyes are being pecked out by crows. When Diana shoots at them, they somehow turn into naked women who aren't just pecking his eyes out, they're also eating his face? You can actually see gaps of light between their mouths and his face. They're just making little pecking motions with their heads. Uh, <sighs> Dutch looks on in horror at this and shakes his head. So the crows weren't just the devil. They were also naked cannibal ladies. The ladies walk away, kind of reminiscent of the Brides of Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula when they're chased off of Keanu Reeves. It's kind of like that. They, they sort of walk away in a similar fashion. Ray immediately asks Dutch to kill him because he doesn't want to live with a half-eaten face, so Dutch does. He, he shoots him. I feel personally that it's a bit of an overreaction and Dutch was a little too eager to oblige, but you know, we haven't really been given time to invest in any of these characters, so Ray's death really doesn't carry much weight. Back up above the lake, the boys continue their spiritual smack talk and CG light show, Daniel trying to make Cole feel guilty for sleeping with Lola, and Cole just continuing to quote the Bible back at him. 
Under the water, the two zombie murderer lackeys are making their way through the ruins. Then, Heather picks up her sketchbook and starts hastily drawing a face on one of the drawings of the man impaled on the cross. And this is where I get really confused, because was Daniel right? Does Heather make things happen with her drawings rather than the other way around? Cole tells Daniel that his sister is more powerful than either of them, but she's just drawing. That's that's all she's doing. Once Heather has finished drawing Daniel's face on the impaled man and Cole has become almost completely enveloped by fire, he shoots the zombie lackeys out of his hands or summons them from beneath him somehow. I, I do not know how or why, but they latch onto Daniel and hurl him into the cross on the steeple in the middle of the lake. Daniel bursts into flames, screaming, and Cole collapses into the water. Now, mind you, that whole scene being the final battle is a lot longer than what I've just described, but it's also rife with redundancies and a lot of just very quick back and forth action between, you know, the two leads. There's a lot of banter between the two of them that just doesn't really contribute anything to the story. And so I'd, I don't really know what else to say about it, you know? Heather draws Daniel's face on the body of the man impaled on the cross. Cole summons zombies from his hands. Daniel dies. That, that's pretty much the gist of the big battle. So Cole, having collapsed, is sinking to the bottom of the lake. We get an okay shot of Daniel on the cross, reminding us of how much it looks like Heather's drawing, and Lola hugs Heather on the shore as she cries for her brother, who I assume she thinks is dead. Dutch dives in to save him, but there's somebody else waiting at the bottom of the lake. Cole's mother, who is holding him like a baby next to her grave where he landed. His mother just happened to be there at the bottom of the lake waiting to save him. I, 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 don't, I don't know how. Is she a mermaid? No, no, she is not. Am I going to call her a mermaid? Yes. Yes, yes, I am. I have no idea how she's there. She's just it's deceased mother ex machina. And something that makes so little sense gets a nonsensical name. So she's a mermaid. Once back on land, Cole empties his lungs of water, with Dutch acting kind of like a crazy personal trainer about it. Then Frank realizes that Cole is okay and the battle is over, which means he can rest now. He waddles a few more feet before keeling over and dying to a goddamn drum roll. <laughs> so Frank is actually dead now. But he was one of the most memorable characters in the film, and Jeffrey really, really made the most of, of what little he was given, so I'm satisfied in that regard. Back on the cross, Daniel melts down to a skeleton, and we fade out to the B&B &B the next day. So the film wraps up with what characters survived. Lola, Dutch, Diana, Cole, and Heather, all gathered outside of the bed and breakfast, saying their goodbyes. Well, some of them. Diana and Dutch, it turns out, are actually leaving together. So they leave... And then Lola has a very emotional exchange with both Heather and Cole, and then she leaves to hopefully go be a good mother, for fuck's sake. And then we're left with Heather and Cole. And as they're getting into their car, Cole asks Heather if she would be willing to teach him how to draw. They drive off to a funky, bluesy song written and performed by, you guessed it, Kevin Van Hook, as the credits roll. So that's it. That's Voodoo Moon. 
It's such a terrible film, but I love it more and more every time I see it. I keep going back. I, I just, I can't stop. And so I, I can't help but recommend it to anyone out there who may be listening. Give this movie a shot. Walk into it prepared for it to be terrible, and you may get a lot out of it like I have. Or you might watch it and decide that you will never listen to my podcast again because I cannot be trusted. I don't know. Either way, I hope that you enjoyed this recount of the film. There really wasn't a whole lot to research about it apart from the director comment and the deleted scenes, as well as a little documentary on the DVD. There, there just isn't a whole lot of information about this film out there. And even as far as reviews are concerned, I don't want to read any of the reviews that I've read of this film. Almost everyone who has seen this film, and believe me, it's a small pool of people, but almost everybody who has seen it absolutely hated it. And their reviews of it were very hateful. And I just, I, I don't want to spread that around. I love this movie. So thank you, mom, for giving me this delightful train wreck of a movie. It really helped me get through the last couple of months of last year. And uh, I, I've enjoyed talking about it tonight. So <laughs> I wish I had more to say about it on an academic note. But you know, this is my first episode back after a couple of months away. I, I really just wanted to sit down and talk. So so that's, that's what I've done. All right. Well, speaking of afterthoughts, <laughs> I realize now I'm a little rusty here. I didn't talk about Voodoo Moon's budget, which was approximately $2 million, by the way, or how cheap the special effects look, how lackluster the cinematography is. I don't even feel like I fully prepared you guys for how haphazardly the film was written. I, I was also recording most of this episode in a new space. As some of you may know, I moved last month and my new apartment has been a bit of a challenge to outfit for this project. So if you've made it this far, just please bear with me. I'm rebooting my brain with updates for 2021. Moving on to horror news. First and foremost, the thing everyone is talking about, Danielle Harris and Joe Dante together again for an upcoming all-female slasher entitled Sequel. This dark comedy, which is set to begin filming sometime this year, will be directed by Harris, produced by Renfield, and although we have very few details at this point, it's hard not to be excited at the prospect of a bunch of final girls battling it out, which is what a lot of people think sequel is offering us. Whatever the plot may be, Harris seems confident that the project will feature strong female leads, solid humor, and a kind of grounded story, saying, I didn't want to do anything paranormal since we have enough real-life evil without having to go make shit up. A fucking men, Danielle. <laughs> Amen. She goes on to say, if I'm going to spend the next two years of my life on a film, it has to be fun, and this story has it all. That's enough for me. I'm really looking forward to learning more about this film as details unfold. For a little recommended reading, there's a fabulous article from Gray Underwood over at the Horror News Network entitled An Appreciation of Roger Spottiswood's Terror Train, which recommends the often overlooked New Year's Eve-themed slasher, which is one of my personal favorites, as an excellent way to ring in the new year. Underwood also provides some moving commentary on the positive impact horror films can have on us in the wake of real-world crises. There's also an inspiring editorial from John Squires at Bloody Disgusting called 2020 how horror survived and dominated a horrifying year. In this article, Squires revels in the near overwhelming volume of titles released last year, celebrating our beloved genre for kicking ass through the chaos. He says, in many ways, 2020 was a year where horror showed the world what horror
horror does best, not just enduring and thriving no matter the circumstances, but also reflecting our current lives, troubles, and experiences in a way that no other genre really can. And speaking of what horror does best, wrapping up, I would like to talk briefly about my thoughts on the new Castle Freak. I'm keeping this brief mainly because I would like to devote an entire episode to this film at some point this year, so I don't want to go too deep into my feelings, but I also don't want to say nothing about it because honestly, and I apologize to my fellow Stuart Gordon fanatics out there who hated this, I didn't hate it. I actually kind of enjoyed it. A lot. Castle Freak 2020, directed by Tate Steinzik, stars Claire Catherine and Kika Magales. It's one-third remake of the 95 film from Gordon, one-third a massive overhaul of the original short story The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft, and one-third entirely its own thing. The film was produced in part by Barbara Crampton and Charles Band, and while it isn't a perfect film by any means, it did do exactly what I had hoped it would. It shocked and even at times disturbed me. This is something few horror films are able to do for me anymore, and I am quite frankly a little starved for it. It's also, in my opinion, mandatory if any part of your film is remaking something that Stuart Gordon once made. You have to be able to do the unexpected and have fun in the process. The new Castle Freak does this in spades and managed to capture that spirit of Stuart Gordon as well as Full Moon in ways I didn't see coming. Do I have complaints? Absolutely. As I said, it isn't a perfect film. I could have done without the heavy drug use aspect, a little less of the overly experimental cinematography, and more likable characters, but what it lacks is consistently evened out by what it offers. And I spent quite a bit of the third act with my jaw on the floor. So I have no choice but to commend this film for its willingness to go big with some grotesque SFX, satisfying kills, and its unwavering devotion to the Cthulhu mythos. I do intend to take a much longer look at this movie at some point in the future, maybe even do some kind of, you know, comparison between the original and the remake, which reminds me, if you have not listened to Modern Horror Show's most recent episode, which is exactly that, a sort of versus look at Castle Freak 95 uh, and Castle Freak 2020, I highly recommend heading over to Anchor or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and checking it out. I would also encourage anyone out there listening to go over to Cadaver Club on YouTube and check out his first impressions review. I actually watched that before I even watched the movie. And yeah, so just if you haven't done it yet, check out Modern Horror Show and Cadaver Club for much more in-depth and better organized reviews of the film. I think that's all I have for this week. If you have listened to this entire rambling episode, thank you so very much. Um, Hello, how are you? How was your new year? If you have also seen Voodoo Moon and you have thoughts on the film you would like to share with me, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. Uh, You can join the Discord and talk about it with all of us over there, or you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Just fair warning, any emails that I get that are in any way related to the podcast are likely to be read out loud here. So just be mindful of that when you send them to me. (laughs) I hope everybody out there enjoyed leaving 2020 behind as much as I did. And uh, I hope we have a much better year this year. I hope it's scary in a good way. And um, with any luck, I'll see you guys next week. Stay safe. Stay sane. Tell us the names of your characters, Kevin. And above all else, creep it real. (laughs) 